<laughs> yeah, ending that episode with <laughs> Rest in Bees Tunes again. I'll be <laughs> As we end every yeah. episode here at The News Never Ends. <laughs> discuss briefly my two um, uh, weird Twitter celebrity sightings. Oh yeah, so yeah. So the first is, yeah, and I mean at the risk of becoming more of a, uh, you know, Chapo Trap House Stan podcast <laughs> than we already are. Right, obviously. Um, I had a celebrity run-in with Felix Biederman. <laughs> I mean, I just passed him on the street and I shouted uh, love Chapo at him because I couldn't think of anything better to say and he kind of scurried off and he was like thanks dude that was it (laughs) not a great story uh the thing that makes it better and you know i don't want to dox myself right of course but um so maybe we'll make this just for the patreon people oh we can do that trust me i'm joking (laughs) uh i work for a uh bicycle tour guide company yeah you know i have a show business job um i work for a company that yeah does bike tours around chicago so i ran peter's a jock yeah (laughs) talking about history on a bike Uh, so i that's what i was doing when i saw felix biederman i was leading a group of quebecois tourists around chicago on bicycles so uh from his perspective i was probably just a uh it was probably a strange sighting because i was wearing a safety vest and uh, (laughs) leading a bunch of older uh french canadians uh you were a, you were a gilet jaune as far as you can yeah. tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we do wear the gilet jaune uh, safety vests. Yeah. I guess they're more like orangey or whatever than mm-hmm. uh, yellow. Are those still going on? The gilet jaune? Yeah, it's in the twenty eighth week, I think. Jesus. Now. Yeah, and it just is there just like not a like French government anymore. I don't know. I don't really is uh, <laughs> is Macron in like the north of Italy. <laughs> somewhere like writing edicts yeah exactly uh, no one follows exactly no i i don't really know i mean what's gonna happen with it but i know we were all hoping that uh yeah macron would get guillotined right and the crackdown just keeps getting more and more violent i mean more and more people get arrested and beaten Mm -hmm. up by the cops oh i mean so another thing we could talk about is our nation's um march to war with iran oh yeah if we want yeah i mean if we want to uh talk about something as boring as that yeah, and uh, right, and related to that, what what seems like the total collapse of uh, this coup attempt that we've been doing in Venezuela. Yeah, yeah, the taking of the embassy really feels like an admission of defeat. I mean, that really is like the. Yeah, Could, can you explain what that was? Do you are you familiar? A little it? bit, yeah. I mean, basically the, and you remember this probably as one of those many things that was happening in that flurry of activity in the early stages of the soft coup was, you know, Trump exiled all the, he kicked out all the uh, Venezuelan um, diplomatic corps from the U.S. And so the Venezuelan embassy in D.C., I think there's one in D.C. and one in New York, and the one in D.C. was empty for a while. Uh, It just was, like, full of a bunch of pictures of uh, Bolivar and, you know, a bunch of pool tables, I don't know. But then when the coup in Venezuela started going belly up, the new kind of consolation prize that they were looking for and sort of leverage to start setting up the government in exile really was that the uh, opposition was going to uh, take control of the embassy in D.C., 
right? Uh, yeah. As if they were, like, the State Department. Is that what's going to happen? Guaido's going to, like, yeah, move into, like, a mansion in Miami? Yeah, I... Like, the government in exile? Exactly, I think, basically. I mean, I think it's either that or the uh, CIA assassinate him in Venezuela. Right, and yeah, and make him a martyr for all the Which, other Which, I mean, they very well could do. Oh, totally, yeah. Because um, he he's in Venezuela right now. Yes, right? yeah, that's from my understanding, at least. And they're, like, yeah, it, they're, tr- I mean... Maduro should lock him up, right? Uh, because he's like planning a coup. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah has I mean, that's what's going to happen. Uprising. I think they haven't locked him up yet. I'm not sure. I mean, they should. He's committing treason, right? Uh, what do you think we would do in our country if, uh, you know, China recognized, you know, some schlub as president and like started. Uh, fucking with us and trying to install him, like, we would put him in prison and it would be right to do that. Right. But I think Maduro has not been doing that because he understands how it would get used by the, by the people who are trying to overthrow him in America. Right. So he hasn't been doing that. So, uh, so I think a lot of what the CIA is doing right now is trying to get Guaido murdered. Right. But, um, but so, cause that's the only way he's useful to them. Now. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But and yes, the other thing, right. Is that a year from now, he could be giving Ted talks about like how close we are to uh, building a new Venezuela. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like he's going to be the MEK guys, but for Venezuela. Yeah. Oh my God. He's going to go on Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> Guaido go on <Yeah>. Colbert. <laughs> Hell yeah. Just him and the pod save guys talking about, what the next steps yeah. in a row are. Um, oh my god, yeah, he's gonna get a pod save podcast. <laughs> he's gonna be in the, what's their network? Like the... Um, Crooked Media. Crooked Media, yeah. Get him a... Get yeah, him which a is another one of those, like, nasty women, uh, nevertheless she persisted things where it's like you're taking an awful thing that Trump or McConnell said. Oh, is that and, where Crooked Media comes from? I Yeah, I don't know if it's directly, but it's like they're trying to sound like a Trump thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I have definitely wanted to do that, but like with more serious, like yeah. I uh, wanted to call our podcast Dude Luke and Presa, yeah, and you wouldn't let me. The Rootless Cosmopolitan. <laughs> exactly. Style. What was the thing? Did you see the thing on uh, Twitter? Some like, you know, uh, left, you know, some Nazbol uh, left... Uh, fascist was tweeting about uh, like shiftless new media Jews. No, no, Which that would be the perfect name for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so anyway, yeah, the uh, Venezuelan opposition was going to take the embassy, and I think actually Code Pink and the Embassy Defenders Collective reached out to the Venezuelan State Department or State Department equivalent first. And they were like, hey, can we help out with this? And they said, yeah, absolutely. We invite you into our embassy. Please, like, hang out there as much as you want. And so Code Pink, Medea And, and that's because the the Maduro representatives in the embassy had been forced out. Exactly, right? yeah. So there were no representatives of the legitimate government of Venezuela in the embassy. And so allies of the Venezuelan government and just more, you know, members of the American peace movement volunteered to basically occupy the embassy to keep it out of the hands of the opposition. So friend of the show, Medea Benjamin, a bunch of Code Pink comrades, Alex Rubenstein ended up embedded as a reporter with them for a while. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and he has some amazing footage of, you know, these people uh, yelling slurs at the embassy collective. Wow. And, uh, are you sad that all of our friends are in the Venezuela? <laughs> exactly. I'm so jealous. <laughs> Everyone's hanging out without you. <laughs> Everyone hates you. Nobody likes you. They're getting their power cut off. 
And basically, it became a microcosm of the coup was uh, a metaphor that everyone caught on to pretty quick was they blockaded, you know, the mob that was organized by basically a bunch of think tanks after a while. Um, there's like great reporting on this uh, by Max Blumenthal and people like that. But basically, this stirred up racist mob uh, accrued outside the embassy, uh, you know, uh, aided and abetted by the D.C. police and Secret Service, uh, who are supposed to defend the embassy. That's like half their job. Um, and they, like all of those right-wing groups, uh, started blockading the embassy, not allowing food in. Often police were caught on camera, not letting food in. Um, you know, just like, uh, blaring music and, uh, like flashing strobe lights at them at nighttime, uh, trying to force them out as much as possible. Uh, they got the local DC, uh, power monopoly to shut off their electricity and Wi-Fi. Um, they got their water shut off and it became like the Venezuelan state under siege, except, you know, in this, uh, smaller version in the embassy. Um, so yeah, it was like Anya Parampil, uh, like live streaming, uh, with like her singing, you know, solidarity, solidarity forever in front of pictures of Bolivar and shit like Dude, that. That's rad. It was great. And eventually they all got forced out and, um, it was only, I think four people who were left in the embassy when the police finally raided it yeah. and arrested them. And I think all those people are out on bond now. Um, but yeah, the Guaido opposition, uh, now has control of the DC embassy. Yeah. Uh, and probably there'll be like the Dalai Lama there. They'll just have a government in exile and, yeah. you know, give Ted talks and shit. And we'll right. move on. And to also, us. yeah. And also like the Dalai Lama just moaning about how they're not allowed to own slaves anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I know. And, like, the Venezuelans will keep suffering under starvation sanctions uh, and probably learn to live with it like Cuba did. Yeah. Uh, and um, we'll move on to turning Iran into a parking lot. Yeah, right, exactly. So all of this is to say that it seems now the the Trump administration is pivoting to a war with Iran. Right. Which is to be expected. I mean, do you think do you think we're going to do this thing finally? I mean, this has been a project of the conservatives, and I mean, and Chuck Schumer, right? It's not just the conservatives, <laughs> yeah. right? Hillary Clinton, uh, Iran. Some language recently. You said if Iran were to strike Israel, there would be uh, massive retaliation. Scary words. Does massive retaliation mean you'd go into Iran, you would bomb Iran? Is that what that's supposed to suggest? Well, the question was, if Iran were to launch a nuclear attack on mm -hmm. Israel, what would our response be? And I want the Iranians to know that if I'm the president, we will attack Iran. And I want them to understand that. Because it does mean that they have to look very carefully uh, at uh, their society. Because whatever stage of development they might be in their nuclear weapons program, in the next 10 years, during which they might foolishly consider launching an attack on Israel, we would be able to totally obliterate them. That's a terrible thing to say, but those people who run Iran need to understand that because that perhaps will deter them from doing something that would be reckless, foolish, and tragic. Yeah, it has been a project of the one-party state that we have. Yeah, the blob. Yeah. Uh, to, to have a war with Iran. And in fact, we did have a war with Iran. We murdered their democratically elected president in the 50s. Yes. Uh, so this and is, then gave Saddam Hussein chemical weapons right. and all kinds of conventional weapons to murder their uh, yeah. people in uh, the Iran-Iraq war. Exactly. So it's really just uh, the start of a new chapter in our uh, imperialist assault on Iran. Exactly. And yeah. like we talk about all the time and is just important to mention anytime you talk about this stuff, we are already making war on Iran in the form of sanctions. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, right, just like we are 
we will continue to be at war with Venezuela in a sanctions war. Right. Yeah. It would be kind of funny if we totally got our ass kicked by Iran. Yeah. Which is what would certainly happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And, like, um, a lot of our, you know, allies in uh, Western Europe would not join us for this. Yeah. That'd be Uh, sick. Because already... So we had the Iran deal. In my opinion, one of the best things that Obama did in his presidency. Definitely. One of the, one of the highlights of his presidency was yeah. having this deal with this deal with Iran. It did not go far enough. It did not, you know, it, it did not elevate Iran to the status of just a normal state that we can do business with. Yeah. But also it would have been impossible for him to do that in the political climate he was operating in. Yeah. It had all the yeah. characteristics of an Obama achievement, which was that it didn't go far enough. Yeah. And it was wiped out immediately by his successor. Exactly. And that's the biggest weakness of it. Though it wasn't, it was not wiped out completely. It. So you're correct. We have violated the Iran right. deal. Uh, in in a number of ways, and now President Trump has even just you know torn it up and said we're not doing it anymore. Right. But it it was not just a deal between us and Iran. It was a deal between the United States and Iran and and a lot of other countries, including our allies in Europe. And they have mostly they have been. My understanding is that they have been sticking to the deal. I they have been right. continuing to honor it, and Iran has been continuing to honor it as well. Right. So those countries are just not going to join us in this <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah. the, the danger is that the U.S. has started to take countries off of its exceptions list for people who can buy Iranian oil. So it's just going to keep so ramping up that to, pressure. we're going to strong arm, like, Norway and exactly. into, into uh, sanctioning Iran. Yeah, at least doing sanctions, yeah. uh, even if they won't devote boots on the ground or anything like that, come, like, oh, God, another land war. And by the way... So this is, you know, this is way, way back when Trump first became president. And there <laughs> you were, mean either two minutes or yeah, a billion right. years ago? Uh, and there was that, le- that there was that legislation that was a bundle of sanctions against Russia and Iran. Right. Uh, and Compromise. Bernie, and Bernie Sanders voted against it. Right. But it passed overwhelmingly with huge Democratic support. And and at the time, people were like, "How dare Bernie Sanders?" Vote against it. You know he's in, he's Putin's puppet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's working for Russia. He's compromised, which you know plenty of people still believe about him. Right. Um, As if that's about that. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. And the reason that he voted against it had nothing to do with the sanctions against Russia, which were all probably also stupid and missing right. the point. It was because shoehorned into the sanctions bill against Russia for the election meddling was also a bundle of sanctions against Iran, which. The Democrats did so that they could get some Republicans to vote for it. But in doing that, they were completely undercutting Barack Obama's legacy. Yeah. And his greatest one of his greatest achievements, which was the Iran deal, because those sanctions violated the terms of the of the deal. Yeah. So Democrats have torn up this deal far before Trump did. Yeah. Trump just, you know, made it more serious and finalized it. But that should be a serious mark against any Democrat running for president that uh, voted for that sanctions package. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all the mainstream libs are talking about how much they love Obama and they're going to make Joe Biden president because he reminds them of Obama. But they also were, you know, totally just shat all over his uh, one of his best achievements, one of his most significant achievements, you know, in the name of like not appearing weak to Putin or whatever. And because they do hate Iran. Yeah, and because they hate Iran, right. It's not just the people who tore up the Iran deal on the Democratic side, which is a lot more meaningful, like that has real consequences. But it's also the people who are going on the Sunday talk shows now and saying, yeah, we're we're gonna fuck him up. Yeah, Schumer did not vote for the Iran deal and he was undermining it as it was taking place. Mm -hmm. He was actively trying to to foil Obama's legacy. Yeah. If you 
you want to think about it in those terms. And yeah, I mean, Chuck Schumer is is as big an Iran hawk as, as John Bolton. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is a bipartisan effort because we want their oil. Like that's what, that's all that it's about. Yeah. Uh, because they don't, you know, whatever, lease their oil fields to American corporations. Yeah. They don't bend yeah, to imperialism, exactly. so they have to be destroyed. And you know, there are a lot of libs, like this is something the Pot Save America libs will do now, which is like, well, what's the difference really between Saudi Arabia and Iran? And they're making the point like, you know, they're both repressive uh, you know, they both have, they're both dictatorships. In order to slam Saudi Arabia. In order to slam Saudi Arabia. Right. So they, they pose that rhetorical question. What they never do is actually answer the question, what's the difference between Saudi Arabia and Iran? And the difference <laughs> is that Saudi Arabia will allow American corporations to profit off of their oil and Iran won't. Yeah. And Iran yeah. has a republic and yeah. Saudi Arabia doesn't. Right. Like Iran is a much better government yeah. and state and country than the Saudi Arabian exactly. a kingdom. But it's like, why do we... Uh, they'll you yeah I mean Bill Maher will do this every live will like this has become a common lib talking point now. right is like well really what's the difference between Saudi Arabia and Iran why are we friends with one and not the other oil like obviously <laughs> obviously but they won't answer it and they let it go unanswered and they just their goal is not to explain things to their audience it is to obfuscate the material reality of things because they would. They would rather create the idea that we live in a world of ideas. Exactly. Yeah. And this was an interesting thing. I mean, I was just talking to the boyfriend about this um, because, you know, he hates it in the particular. Biff. The Biff. Because, uh, it, you know, he just hates it in particular uh, in terms of this abortion ban debate that we're having. or just the discourse that's going on now where people like Jenk Uyghur will say, uh, does anyone in Alabama realize that this is the definition of Sharia law? <laughs> uh, and oh, the Alabama abortion thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That like you know, oh, this is Sharia. Oh, all these Republicans, do they is know they're doing Sharia? Sharia? No, do, yeah, it is not at all. Abortion. Muslims are like Jews. Yes, Jews don't care. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, we don't, don't think. Uh, uh, <laughs> we don't think it Except matters. Ben right, exactly. Yeah. Because he's a Christian, and he thinks right. Christians are the real Jews. Yeah. Um, right, and yeah, and Jews are fake Jews. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, this is actually, uh, yeah, I mean, this is the problem that no one will say because, you know, Kamala Harris's comms chief yeah. is comfortable saying, wouldn't it be nice to have a woman president right now? Right. Uh, but she won't say, wouldn't it be nice to not have any Christians be president anymore? Yeah, That's the real problem with the American abortion um, obsession. Also, I mean, you could make the argument that it's not really a Christian thing either, or at least a Protestant thing, because... Protestants were not animated by this issue until, like, the 90s. Uh, yeah, I mean... The 80s. Closer, right, yeah, basically after second-wave feminism. But it was a political project yeah. of, uh, like, conservative Christians to align themselves with Catholics. Right. This had been a Catholic issue for much longer. Yeah. And, you know, it's part of a bigger historical trend of, like, Catholics uh, not being marginalized anymore and becoming just mainstream Christians and, like you know, erasing the difference between Catholics and other Christians and Protestants. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, yeah. we talk a ton about how everyone became a Protestant in America. We don't right. talk enough about how everyone became a Catholic. Yeah. Um, this, but I do think it's worth... Uh, just... Whoa, yeah, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> how did everyone become a Catholic? I think Catholics became Protestants. Right, yeah. I mean, I think basically... And... Oh, but, but Protestants took their pro-life. Yeah. Uh, agenda. And a lot of their other agenda. Like, Protestants used to pride themselves on not caring about sin, right? And now it's all about what you do. It's if you're gay or, uh, you know, uh, if you have an affair. Yeah, uh, I guess so. I guess when I think of Catholics, I think more of, like, um, yeah, like a bunch of, like, Italian guys, like, having a big, like, uh, 
like Feast of San Gennaro and then, like dancing in the streets and stuff. Well, this but is- yeah, I guess there is this big like guilt thing, guilt complex. Yeah, thing too. yeah, I think there but is. But Protestants haven't adopted the guilt guilt complex. They live totally guilty, <laughs> uh, and, and they will they will never feel any sense of hesitancy about any choices that they're making. Yeah. Or, or any anything about their lifestyle. Yeah, we get the yeah. worst of both worlds. Yeah. Um, yes, but but certainly, right, m- mainstream Protestantism adopted certain uh, affects of Catholicism in order to bring them into the fold and just create, like, a monolithic white Christianity. Exactly. Because also when we say Protestants, we're talking about white Protestants. We shouldn't, I shouldn't erase, uh, like, the black church from that, which is a totally different tradition. Right. And I guess they probably are, they probably do feel similarly on the issue of abortion, but it's, you just don't hear, it's just not as animating an issue. Yeah, no, uh, I because, mean, for obvious reasons, yeah, because, like, right. they're not Republicans, right? Like, <laughs> right, and because, yeah, the, the, the black church has maintained a semblance of, uh, like, social justice. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, but this is, I mean, this is just uh, one of those things that, you know, I, I had a friend who, and, like, it's not a big deal, but she was at Harvard, like, taking an econ class. Oh, and, how, long, how long does it take you to mention that you have a friend that goes to Harvard? <laughs> All right. But All I, right, I remember she came back from uh, some semester and said, yeah, I mean, in our class, we disproved the idea of the Protestant work ethic. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, well, we looked at the GDP growth or something right. of Catholic countries versus Protestant countries from like 1970 to 1990. Yeah. And like, there was no difference uh, once you adjusted sure. for everything. And right. I was like, Cause, right. Because Italy is really reporting on their growth numbers. It's also like, like it's not just like <laughs> some, some like sweaty mob guy. It's also like... <laughs> in the numbers. It's also, the, yeah. you know, the whole point of the Protestant work ethic is that we are all Protestants. Like, right. we have all adopted this work ethic. That's what capitalism is. Right. right. And it also... transcended the yeah. vulgar religion. And also that work ethic was always a fig leaf and, like, a justification for colonialism and slavery. Of course. Because I mean, it's not like, right, it's not like the Protestant farmers, they weren't doing shit. They were <laughs> forcing their slaves to do everything. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I yeah. mean, consistently it was uh, a bourgeois ethic. Right. Uh, that sometimes got weaponized by lower class movements, yeah. but it, it's got a really complicated history. But um, just to get back, I think it's worth reading this Cenk Uyghur uh, tweet because I think it gets to the same point as like the Iran and Saudi Arabia are the same thing, like admitting totally. uh, the point that uh, Iran is bad and we need to kill all of them. Cenk Uyghur tweeted on 510, as states like Georgia and Alabama look to outlaw abortion based on their biblical beliefs... First, let's note that's the definition of Sharia law. Second, they should read their own Bible because it is pro-abortion. Let me quote numbers, blah, 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 blah. And then he starts, you know, a Twitter thread about, like, how the Bible is actually pro-abortion, who, as if anyone cares. But, you know, he says the definition of Sharia law is legislation, I guess, based on biblical beliefs. Almost by definition, Islamic Sharia has nothing to right. do with biblical beliefs, yeah. right? And I, for the longest time, I was so confused about why do libs, aside from the fact that they are also Islamophobes, obviously, yeah. why do they say Sharia, why do they throw Sharia at Republicans to embarrass them instead of theocracy, right? Which is the term that applies in both cases. And it's because the right in America has never been anti-theocracy. They've only been anti-Muslim, Right? Like, they have no other way except to say, yeah, you're like those Muslims you hate, because they can't say, yeah, you're like those uh, religious governments that you hate, because they don't hate religious governments. Right. They don't even, there is no equivalency, and this hypocrisy thing, this kind of John Stewart got him uh, technique, doesn't work, and it just reveals that these people also hate Muslims. Yeah. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I think this should be a bigger part of the discourse, too. Iran is going to fuck our shit up. Oh, yeah. They are going to wreck us. Yeah. They are, it is going to be, I mean, forget about Iraq. I mean, back in, you know, in 2002, uh, 2003, uh, you know, some neocons wanted to invade Iran. Right. For, I, they all wanted to invade both. But some thought it was better to invade Iran first, and others thought it was better to invade Iraq first. And the reason why they ultimately invaded Iraq first is because they understood that invading Iran would be really fucking hard. Yeah. And, you know, as as much as we got, like, our shit fucked in, in Iraq, this would this would just dwarf that. Yeah. There have been yeah. all kinds of, um, you know, like, military games that they've run, simulations, and, like, yeah. played out, uh, you know, troop mobilizations. Yeah, can we find the, the story of that military game they played? It's such an amazing story. Yeah, this was, like, the red and the blue teams. Yeah, but it, it would it would be so much bigger than Vietnam, even, in, in terms of how disillusioning Vietnam was for the culture. But the, but the aspect that Iran, that going to war with Iran would have, that Vietnam and Iraq wouldn't, is the ability to which Iran will be able to bring the fight to America. Oh, yeah. And there will be, like, suicide bombings in, in America. Oh, yeah. Um, and they'll be able to attack us. Right. It, it won't be, you know, the it won't be like the Nazis dropping bombs over London, uh, but they will they will be able to coordinate attacks in the U.S. in a way that did not happen with the invasion in Iraq and yeah. Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I mean, this is one reason that, it, and it's not because of any, you know, natural proficiency on the side of one sect over another or whatever, one denomination. But, I mean, you know, the reason that the neocons think the Sunnis are the good Muslims now and the Shia are the bad Muslims is, like, well, where have they managed to conquer, right? They've managed to conquer, uh, like, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq, uh, Egypt, uh, you know, basic Sunni uh, centers of power that were the original, like, Arab nationalist centers of power. Uh, and all of the non-Sunni-dominated states, like Iran and Lebanon and Syria, have actually managed to resist U.S. imperialism. That's the axis yeah. of resistance they talk about. You know, like, uh, not a big enough deal at all is made about America's military defeat in Lebanon, where they invented suicide bombs. Right. And, you know, we act like, yeah, we won that war, Israel still exists. But, I mean, Lebanon has a lot of freedom from U.S. imperialism because they were able to beat Americans. Yeah. And that's going to happen, you know, a million times that with Iran if right. they go to war. I, I pulled this up on Wikipedia. Maybe. Sure. Do you have it? Um, I have a Newsweek article about it. I feel like the Wikipedia page is probably yeah. as good. So there was a, a major war game exercise called Millennium Challenge 2002. You can look it up on Wikipedia. This is their Wikipedia page that I'm referring to. Uh, it ran from July 24th to August 15th of 2002 and cost $250 million. Yeah, what was on their mind in 2002? Exactly. Right? Uh, it involved both live exercises and computer simulations. Millennium Challenge 02 was meant to be a test of future military, quote, transformation, a transition toward new technologies that enable network-centric warfare and provide more effective command and control of current and future weaponry and tactics. The simulated combatants were the United States, referred to as blue, and an unknown adversary in the Middle East, red, with many lines of evidence pointing to Iran being the red side. Red was commanded by retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Paul Van Ripper. Uh, that's such a great, like, strange, <laughs> lovey. 
um, adopted an asymmetric strategy, in particular using old methods to evade Blue's sophisticated electronic surveillance network. Van Ripper used motorcycle messengers to transmit orders to frontline troops and World War II-style light signals to launch airplanes without radio communications. And this is something I've seen, yeah, I think they're about to talk about the small boats, but I mean, think of this when you hear people talking about like closing the Straits of Hormuz now. Yeah, right. Yes, yeah. And also, Iran knows about this war, or Iran can read this Wikipedia. (laughs) They have the technology. Like, you can't just say, well, they won't do this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is actually, I'm looking, there's a Farsi uh, yeah. language uh, Wikipedia page for um, it, so Iran, yeah. I hope we alerted you to it. <laughs> I know, and, and if they don't hear about it, it's really, that's Ahmadinejad's fault for not following either of <laughs> Red received an ultimatum from Blue, essentially a surrender document, demanding a response within 24 hours. Uh, thus warned of Blue's approach, Red used a fleet. By the way, just incidentally, if you are in the military if you're like a, a military general this must be the most fun like badass thing is to do a war game where you play like north korea yes Iran, yes and you just like fuck shit up like yeah. they should make a movie about this seriously um, and you know i'm sure i don't know anything about paul van ripper uh except that he's you know i'm sure like a bloodthirsty goon <laughs> uh, and he has a ridiculous name and i'm sure like most bloodthirsty goons that enlist in the U.S. military, he is also just, like, an incredibly boring person Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, an incredibly banal person. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, they can, you know, get Brad Pitt to do it or something and they can, like, moneyball it. Yes, Uh, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, there's so much Freudian back and forth in being the bad guys as a military guy. It must be so much fun. Um, There... And let's... We'll get back to this, but also um, the war game that America does... With where they're pretending to invade North Korea, mm. which Trump agreed not to do as right. part of the the negotiations with North Korea, an aspect of that war game was conducting a public execution of Kim Jong Un in the in the like town square. Oh my Pyongyang. god! Yeah, so it's like of course North Korea would feel like would would say we're not going to negotiate until you don't do this war game. <laughs> re- reenact uh, like public executions of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, So going back to this war game with with Iran, warned of Blue's approach, Red used a fleet of small boats to determine the position of Blue's fleet by the second day of the exercise. In a preemptive strike, Red launched a massive salvo of cruise missiles that overwhelmed the Blue's electronic sensors and destroyed 16 warships. This included one aircraft carrier, 10 cruisers, and five of six amphibious ships. An equivalent success in a real conflict would have resulted in the deaths of over 20,000 service personnel. Soon after the cruise missile offensive, another significant portion of Blue's Navy was sunk by an armada of small red boats, which carried out both conventional and suicide attacks that capitalized on Blue's inability to detect them as well as expected. At this point, the exercise was suspended. Uh, So you can't do that in a real war. (laughs) If we actually evade Iran, we can't call time now. Um, Blue's ships were refloated and the rules of engagement were changed. Yes, this is the best part. Uh, You also can't do this in a real war. Uh, This was later justified by General Peter Pace as follows. Quote, you kill me in the first day and I sit there for the next 13 days doing nothing. Or you put me back to life and you get 13 more days worth of experiment out of me. Which is a better way to do it? 
After the reset, both sides were ordered to follow predetermined plans of action. <laughs> After the war game was restarted, its participants were forced to follow a scripted draft to ensure a blue force victory. Among other rules imposed by the script, <laughs> Red Force was ordered to turn on their anti-aircraft radar in order for them to be destroyed, and was not allowed to shoot down any of the aircraft bringing blue force troops ashore. Van Ripper also claimed that exercise officials denied him the opportunity to use his own tactics and ideas against Blue Force, and that they also ordered Red Force not to use certain weapon systems against Blue Force, and even ordered the location of Red Force units to be revealed. This led to accusations that the war game had turned from an honest, open, free play test of U.S. warfighting <laughs> capabilities into a rigidly controlled and scripted exercise intended to end in an overwhelming U.S. victory. Obviously. Yeah, alleging that the $250 million was wasted. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so they did No Child Left Behind so that this guy's Kobayashi Maru technique yeah. couldn't be used. Yeah. <sighs> God. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean, it would yeah. be... I mean, there is no way you could overstate the disaster that an open war with Iran would be. No, seriously. Like, so not to mention, uh, you know, the, the inevitable presidential debates we're going to have between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, if Donald Trump even shows up to the debates, uh, where, you know, Joe Biden saying, like, of course Iran was a threat that we needed to neutralize. Uh, you know, we just didn't put enough troops on the ground initially or whatever. You know, it'll be the same talking points about Iraq in 2004, uh, where no Democrat will say that they oppose the war. It'll just be, uh, you know, we oppose the way that the war was prosecuted whatever well you want to talk about our favorite show that ended yeah this week yeah 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 the big bang theory <laughs> game of thrones game of thrones uh season two of uh fleabag uh <laughs> have you watched fleabag uh i saw the first season but i haven't seen season two yet. yeah i watched the first season too yeah um i'm really excited for season two cool. it sounds good um uh we're talking about v we're talking v pierre um, yeah, Veep ended. It was a great show. Yeah. Armando Iannucci is, is a good lib. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one that can, he's one that can live. Do you know much about his, uh, political ideology? I don't know. I mean, aside from that, his work. Yeah, mostly I know is what he put in his work. I think, uh, I think he's a lib. And like, Adam Curtis yeah. doesn't like him. Yeah. And, right, and I mean, if you look at his, it is a little South Parky in the sense that, uh, you know, both sides... Are the problem and you know that's not wrong like I, I i think south park does get a little bit too much flack from like twitter leftists now about doing both sidesism because i mean both sides are ridiculous and they're ridiculous in different ways and both of them deserve to be lampooned uh it's just that then you also have to do the next step which is saying you know the answer isn't political apathy the answer is actually direct action and organizing and uh you know, both parties are bourgeois instruments, so you actually need to create, like, movements of people. And yeah. you actually need to politically activate people. Yeah, I mean, the, po- the both sidesism, especially of something like South Park, and yeah. you can even say this in a lot of Vianucci's work, is, you know, the same problem that Noam Chomsky talked about in... Um, uh, oh God, what's the propaganda book? Um, manufacturing Manufacturing Consent, consent right. Uh, yeah, like, these are... This is the range of possibility and uh you can you know play out these similarly simulated war games within yeah. it 
to draw out the ridiculousness of that game, but it doesn't let you see outside of it. Yeah, and, like, I'll defend South Park more than uh, most leftists. Like, do you remember their 100th episode, which was about the Iraq War? Yes, I mean, that's the classic of this critique. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, excuse me if I'm a little bit country. Well, I'm a little bit rock and roll. I'm a little for supporting our troops. And I'm a little for bringing them home. I believe freedom isn't free. No, but war shouldn't be our goal. We must defend our country. If it means war, then we say no. But actually, I think that is a pretty good critique, right? Because ultimately it's, you know, you have the conservative pro-Iraq war people and they love country music and the troops and 9-11. This is, the culmination yeah. is in this uh, little bit country, little bit yeah. rock and roll. Right, because then you have the anti-war rock and roll people. and they like boomer Michael ex Ward, yeah. Yeah, they're, the, they're like the boomer, right. Uh, they're libs. They're libs. Uh, they, you know, they love the troops too, but they want to bring them home to keep them safe. Right. And, uh, you know, ultimately the point that the episode makes is that, uh, both of these groups are actually helping each other, um, because conservatives can look at the liberals and be like, well, aren't we great, uh, because we live in a society that allows dissent uh, and then liberals can look at conservatives and say, uh, you know, we, we can absolve ourselves morally, but at the same time we benefit from, uh, from their actions and from the state apparatus right. that they have in place. What that episode didn't do and what South Park never does, which what they, you know, uh, which they would be a lot better if they had done, is gone to the next step to say, yes, both of these people are working together to create a structure that preserves imperialism and capitalism. Uh, and, you know, also we need to consider that these aren't the only two parties that matter because there's also the people that we are bombing right. and uh, the, the victims of imperialism. But then there is also South Park would have been better if there was more of a challenge issue uh, to, you know... To say, yes, both liberals and conservatives are complicit with each other and they're both terrible in different ways. And uh, both Democrats and the Republicans are compromised. So, therefore, you must build a politics outside of that. Right. Uh, and that's something they never did. Yeah. And uh, it just would be yeah. a totally different show if it were that. Yeah, right. right. It turns out that it actually is. And I, I, you're convincing me. I'm sold on this. You know, it was basically a correct diagnosis of... The dynamic, yeah. but in the episode, I—I I mean, maybe you can correct me. I don't know if you've seen it more recently, but in the episode, it's played as like, and it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing. But they are like, that's what make makes America great. Oh, Benjamin Franklin, 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 Benjamin Franklin. Mr. Franklin, where do you stand on the war issue? I believe that if we are to form a new country, we cannot be a country that appears war-hungry and violent to the rest of the world. However. We also cannot be a country that appears weak and unwilling to fight to the rest of the world. So, what if we form a country that appears to want both? Yes. Yes, of course. We go to war and protest going to war at the same time. Right. If the people of our new country are allowed to do whatever they wish, then some will support the war and some will protest it. And that means that as a nation, we could go to war with whomever we wished, but at the same time act like we didn't want to. If we allow the people to protest what the government does, then the country will be forever blameless. It's like having your cake and eating it too. 
because they're not on the side of the libs yeah. totally. They're like, yeah, sometimes you need to go to war with bad people and like this yeah, way we get true. the best of both worlds. That's true. Uh, but, and then they also, yeah, they had, um, they, and they had the flashback in that episode to the founding fathers right. where you're like, yeah, that's basically this is what America has always been doing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And that's why they're bad. Founding fathers want you all to know that we can disagree all we want as long as we agree that America kicks ass. Hey, I'm a little bit country. And I'm a little bit rock and roll. I'll be the muscle of America. And me, I'll be the caring soul. And when you put us together, you get a nation with one goal to thrive and prosper with a little country and rock and roll. Come on up here, everybody. But there is also... The critique that they're making in that episode is kind of similar to the society of the spectacle and, like, the spectacle of the protest. Yeah. And, like, Libs aren't actually serious about ending the Iraq War yeah. or, or fighting war. But then they didn't go to the next step of explaining imperialism. Right. And, and saying that it's, you know, it's because they both profit and perpetuate imperialism. Yeah. No, they're operating within this one sphere yeah. of conflict, which just, that's what the show is. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not really a critique to say. I mean, it's a critique, yeah. right, but not in the, like vulgar sense of like we're saying it's bad for that yeah even though it is <laughs> so you're right and yeah. look if, if matt stone and trey parker are, go, are going up against the wall in our revolution like, <laughs> i'm not going we to stand up them. for them yeah but uh yanucci i would stand up for yeah him, and so yanucci yeah. i mean this is because he uh has his origins in yes minister yeah. Like, he goes back that far. And, and the thick of it. Exactly. Well, and yeah. this is why, and exactly what you're talking about is why Adam Curtis doesn't like him, because he sees uh, that kind of, um, you know, Ianucci interest in just, like, how bad bureaucracy is, which obviously it is, you know? But he sees it as part of the neoliberal project to say, yeah, like, there is nothing possible outside of the individual lives that we lead now, and everyone is just an opportunist and uh, will only use power for their own ends. Uh, and so Adam Curtis, who, like, longs for a monarch to rule over him, yeah. like the people <laughs> who watch Game of Thrones, he, he thinks that Iannucci is doing the devil's work in this kind of yeah. propaganda. As the British economy spiraled out of control, the political and bureaucratic elite who had dominated Britain since the war found themselves under attack from both the right and the left. Where once they had been heroic figures who would create a new world, now they were accused of being agents of control, not freedom. We've been ruled by men who live by illusions. The illusion that you can have freedom by government decree. And these new theories began to spread into the public imagination. The writer, who was part of the group advising Mrs. Thatcher, began to write a sitcom that explicitly put forward the theories of public choice. As well as being funny, it was ideological propaganda for a political movement. Humphrey, we have got to slim down the civil service. How many people have we got in this department? Two thousand? Three thousand. About twenty-three thousand, I think, Minister. <laughs> twenty-three thousand? In the Department for Administrative Affairs, 23,000 people just administering other administrators. Mm. We'll have to do a time and motion study, see who we can get rid of. Well, we did one of those last year, Minister. And? It transpired we needed another 500 people. <laughs> the fallacy that public choice economics took on was the fallacy that government is working entirely for the benefit of the citizen. And um, this was reflected by showing that in any 
uh, in, in the program, in Yes Minister, we showed that almost everything that the government has to decide is a conflict between two lots of private interest, that of the politicians and that of the civil servants, trying to advance their own careers and improve their own lives. And that's why public choice economics, which explains why all this was going on, was at the root of almost every episode of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Uh, but Adam Kerr just doesn't want doesn't want a monarch. <laughs> no, he, he wants, wants like a Stalinist yeah, dictator. dictatorship of the proletariat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And right. And look, if you if you say that like every show is uh, you can only like something if the creator of it uh, is like an anti-imperialist <laughs> socialist is a Maoist third worldist, <laughs> uh, you're just not going to have a lot of stuff to watch. Right. Yeah. Uh, and like. I really like The Wire. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I haven't watched The Wire in a while. Yeah. So maybe if I visit it again, I'll be like, this is lib shit. Yeah. But, like, David Simon <laughs> sucks on Twitter. I also... And, like, all of his politics are terrible on Twitter. A friend of mine reached yeah. out and said, you know, I, I this happens every time. Yeah. There's an anti-abortion, uh, you know, struggle that we have to deal with is people try to take Juno away from me. And I like Juno. <laughs> I'm oh, because she stop. should have gotten an abortion. Yeah, because it's a pro-life I movie. That. I hate that about Knocked Up, too. People yeah. People say something about Knocked Up, and I'm sure there's a lot of other movies. The reason they can't have an abortion is because the movie would be 15 minutes long. <laughs> like, there would be no content. <laughs> like, obviously... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's true that Diablo Cody is a reactionary. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, they're all reactionary. Right, exactly, yeah. right. I mean, Juno's a great movie, uh, right. even though it's pro-life, and I think Diablo Cody yeah. is pro-life. But also, and I mean, it is just a broader thing that people don't understand, people critique television or film or any kind of uh, storytelling, and they their, their critique of it is that there was a conflict that they wished hadn't been there right or that the protagonist makes choices that they shouldn't have made yeah and it's like well that's what a story is <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh and it's like yeah if everybody did the like <laughs> sensible conflict averse thing that people do in real life then there wouldn't be any stories right like if juno had gotten an abortion that to her yeah she wouldn't have been gone. hit on by jason Bateman. exactly yeah. never would have gotten that right it's like yeah if she got knocked up and then got an abortion then her life would have just continued it, it just would have been a very small moment in her life and then it would have her life would have continued she would have still been a high school student or whatever it would have been an yeah. hour and 45 minutes of michael sarah's junk flopping right, up and down exactly. in the gym yeah. shorts, which wouldn't have been bad you know no and i mean <laughs> I, I can get into a movie where there's no real conflict and you're just seeing how characters are living. Right. Uh, yeah, and nothing really happens to them. And you're just like, oh, yeah, this is what it's like to be in high school in Texas. Or right. Uh, but that can't be every movie. Right. Yeah. No. Sometimes yeah. characters have to be unlikable or make bad choices. Yeah. Or be problematic. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything... Yeah, I mean, I just don't believe in most culture as propaganda, as yeah. that's its main value. And certainly for Ian Uchi, like, these are just great stories about heroic characters uh, right. who are just, like, so terrible. Yeah, and, uh, like, yeah, also his, I mean, his analysis of Washington, D.C. and uh, English-British politics um, is pretty good. Like, you can... If, if your framework... To understand what's going to happen in politics is, uh, well, everybody's stupid and they're all afraid of their boss 
and nobody's planning ahead. Everybody is just trying to cover up for their last mistake. Uh, and everybody is paranoid and everybody uh, hates each other and they're all just trying to advance their careers and avoid professional humiliation. Like, that's a pretty good model for predicting what's going to happen in American politics. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, there isn't that kind of mass movement that Matt Stone and Trey Parker can say, and these third people, they do it totally different. Yeah, You right. know, they're just talking about what's in front of them. Yeah, yeah, right. And would it be cool if... Uh... <laughs> Like, the last episode of Veep was, like, some revolutionary, like, executing all of them. Would have been dope. Yeah, that would have been dope. But also, in America in 2019, we are so far away from that happening, and it's just not realistic. Yeah. And yeah. to, you know, to come back to the finale and realism in Veep, I mean, this was a show, I know that a lot of people lost interest in the season before this, yeah. the sixth season, where she's not president, not in power, basically, and it's like her post-president career. Um, I actually liked the season a lot. Uh, you know, I, I know that was the final nail in the coffin for a lot of people being like, oh, she's Hillary Clinton, right? This is about the Clinton yeah. Foundation. Uh, but, you know, it's about every president post-presidency. Right. It's about Jimmy Carter going yeah. and, like, signing off on fraudulent elections in Kenya, you know? I, I thought it was great. But I like that season, too. And, um, I mean, I think it's true that it, it, it wasn't as good as the earlier seasons, but also, like, I, I feel like if a show is going to go into its sixth season, it needs to change pretty considerably. Yeah. Like, no show needs to do six seasons. Exactly, yeah. Uh, you, you do have to change things up or else you stagnate. So I appreciate that they made a big change. Yeah. And it was pretty entertaining. I mean, it was still better than, like, almost anything else on television. Right, exactly. Uh, and then I thought this final season was really good. I thought this final yeah. season was amazing, right? Yeah. I And basically, this is the thing that I love about Veep most of all, is just that... It has been so interesting and surprising for me to see which shows, which started earlier on, have adapted well to the Trump era. Yeah. And I think Veep is example A of a show that actually flourished in the Trump era. Right. Unlike, uh, you know, a show like House of Cards, which also, because Kevin Spacey, uh, you know, <laughs> paid off some people to lie about Kevin Spacey. Right. I mean, and that's uh, a great... I mean, even I'm, that... I, I am not a Kevin Spacey truther. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I you weren't joking. saying that, like, yeah. the Netflix people paid people off. Oh, yeah. No. It, was, uh, <laughs> it was that um, yeah. the guy from Rent got paid a million dollars to say that Kevin Spacey tried to rape him. Yes. Um, no, I am not a Kevin Spacey truther. Uh, He's clearly a monster. But, right. um, um, I mean, even that is a great example of, like, a show's interaction with the Me Too era. Uh, right. I, you know, like... Um, but that's also because the reason why House of Cards couldn't deal with Trump or Parks and Recreation, which had already been off the air, but they would not have been able to address it, uh, is because their models for how politics work, you know, how liberal bourgeois politics work, just is so off. Whereas the, the Veep one is pretty much correct. It was like, right, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I mean, you don't even have to limit it to shows with a political theme, per se. Yeah. Like, my big example on the other side is something like Broad City. You yeah, know? right. And I know we've talked about this. I don't know if we've talked about it on pod, but it's amazing to see how much Broad City just flopped after the Obama years yeah. in the Trump era. I mean, this show that you would think would have, so, at least I would think, I don't want to speak for other people, but I thought that it would have so much to say and would take on a whole new life in you know the Trump era. Yeah. And it just got subsumed in that hashtag resistance I attitude. Know. Oh, you didn't like that they bleeped Trump's name <laughs> every time? <laughs> Uh, I mean, and this was the show that had Hillary Clinton on the show yeah. during the primaries, right? So, like, Yas Queen. Also, yeah. Yas Queen is Broad City, right? Yes, yeah, yeah that was a, the Broad City thing. That's their legacy. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it was it's obviously stolen from black gay yeah, people, right. but uh, yeah, like that's that's their legacy. Um, and you know, uh, they just couldn't handle any of it. They couldn't handle the Me Too era. They yeah. couldn't handle Trump, and it just revealed how ridiculous the whole show was uh, as this thing that could only exist in the hot house, uh, you know, specified environment of the post-crash Obama years. Whereas Veep, you know, it, it seemed like Veep was predicting exactly what happened and Veep was vindicated in the end, uh, which is sad for us, but yeah. great for the work of art. Yeah. Also a thing that I was, uh, I guess we haven't really spoiled anything about the finale. It came out a few weeks ago. Yeah, Spoiler we can dig into spoilers. People. Spoilers now. Uh, one thing I thought was an interesting choice is that, and maybe it's just, you know, a show in its final episode, like, wanting to be sentimental. Uh, but, like, oh, at the end of the episode, you kind of saw, like, what happened over the years to every character. Right. You get the um, old thems. And the best characters uh, had the best lives. Like, Mike McClintock, who, <laughs> you know, in the show is, like, a lovable idiot. And he's, like, a total, he's the nicest person, really, in the show. Yeah. Uh, but he's stupid and incompetent. He becomes a... Uh, like, you know, belo- he, like, becomes Tom Brokaw. Yeah, he's like a, a beloved veteran a newsman. A beloved veteran newsman, yeah. And it's, like, you love to see it, because you love that character. Uh, and then Richard, Richard Splett, of course. Uh, Sam Richardson's character, uh, who's fucking hilarious. Such a breakout star for Yeah, show. right. You know what I always thought the funniest number was? Eleven. <laughs> yes, and such a good character. And yes. Just feels like... 10 different people that I knew at, uh, you know, William and Mary who all wanted to, to work in the Pentagon <laughs> uh, or those people didn't want to work in the Pentagon. They wanted to work in the state department right. because they were idealists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the fact that everyone is such scum except for yeah. Richard Splatt in the end who like solves the Middle East yeah, with right. his three state plan. <laughs> and he not only like over the course of the season rapidly rises in politics to the point where he's like the governor of Iowa right. and then becomes not only president but clearly like a revered elder statesman and like a yeah like a transformational president uh, <laughs> the guy who was introduced as the assistant's assistant yeah <laughs> that is so funny i love that yes yes <laughs> yeah, veep is great veep is so good we're so- talking about some of our favorite lines one of my favorite lines is when they're at the um pork bake off or whatever yes! and they're uh they're worried about the optics because she's commenting julia louis dreyfus's character is commenting on like israel palestine during it uh and they're calling jonah to like control the optics because they're like standing in front of like suckling pigs which you said was yeah. based on a real event right yes it, it is uh referencing like so much in that in that show is referencing uh which people have been criticizing it before, but I think it's great. Right. Uh, that's the the thing that Sarah Palin did where she was, like, talking to CNN. She was, like, talking to CNN cameras at, like, a turkey farm. <laughs> in the background, as she was doing this interview, there's just a farmer butchering turkeys. <laughs> which is awesome. Uh, so she's, like... So in Veep, Julia Louis-Dreyfus' character, Selena Meyer is uh, talking about Israel-Palestine standing in front of a roasting pig. And, you know, the the comms team is, like, shouting at Jonah Ryan to uh, to handle it. And Jonah's like, you guys, uh, most American Jews don't even care about pork. Pork schmork, they say. <laughs> I just love that. Pork schmork, they say. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, and... 
like yeah. to see the people because this must be what it's like for people like Joe Biden and all of Al, yeah. uh, Al Franken's friends to live in this era is that moment when Selena Meyer is talking to like her new rival who's like the cool person of color woman yeah. coming up senator and uh, she's like gossiping with her and she's like oh yeah did old man so and so in the senate grab your ass and she's like oh yeah, yeah. and she like makes a joke about it and uh, the younger woman goes yeah he's actually under investigation now and she goes oh for what yeah uh also the thing in the the final episode and you know there's always like they don't say if they're democrats or republicans i think it's pretty obvious they're democrats yeah and this was this was an interesting thing i know um uh what's her name who's the uh uh who do we love at the new yorker who does tv um um emily nussbaum yeah emily nussbaum yeah uh, the new yorker yeah the new yorker yeah emily nussbaum uh talked about this how you know, she used to slam Veep early on for not saying if they were Democrats or Republicans. Yeah. And she felt like it all paid off this year when everyone became Trump because it freed them up more to yeah. act like they were the one party. Um, um, I don't know if that's the best way to look yeah. at it. I I think that and it was a good choice all along. To sure. me, it is very obvious that they're Democrats because they are in a party that cares about diversity. And Republicans, don't. Not, not only do they not care about diversity, it's but a liability. diversity is a liability. Right, yeah. Uh, but, like, in that show, yeah, they're always worried about, like, the young, like, Asian-American governor that's going to, like, overtake her. Right. Or the, the black uh, woman senator. Right. So, like, to me, that just is, it, it's obvious they're Democrats. It wouldn't make sense to me to think of them as Republicans. Totally. Which makes it, yeah. honestly, more ghoulish when you watch the older seasons now. I don't know if this looked yeah. this way for everyone watching or if, like, I would have felt this way. Let's, you know, just to talk for myself, uh, if I had been watching Veep at the time. But when I rewatched it, or watched a lot of it, honestly, for the first time in the lead up to the finale, uh, or the last season, um, it makes it more ghoulish to think of them as Democrats when you see them triangulating on immigration. Right. Some people say your immigration policy is at odds with your jobs program. How would you respond to that? Well, I would respond like this. I would say that the economy has changed a great deal since I made those statements. And the president and I agree that Americans have to come first. That's my girl. Olympic-style backflip. They're, yeah, they are Chuck Schumer Democrats. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're all incredibly racist yeah. and conservative, but they're the Democrats. Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah, and they are they're racist on a, on a personal level. Oh, yeah. They're not, you know, trying to legislate, uh, you know, institutionalized racism. But, of course, that is the result of, of their policies, and they're okay with that, and it's a part of making compromises yeah. with, like, the most unseemly people. Oh, yeah. Right, and they're, you know, they don't give a shit about the environment, just like Democrats and... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. They all want to be in the picture in the war room. But so then in, uh, we find out that Selena becomes president again. Uh, and this is all done in like the last 10 minutes of the last episode where they're like seeing the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's a... Her funeral. Yeah, fact. exactly. It's her funeral. And she did become president again, but she was an extremely inconsequential, like compromised president. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> do you remember like the one thing that they said that she did as president? Uh, yes, was um, uh, first of all, she was remembered for briefly freeing the country once known as Tibet. <laughs> Yeah, and right. for permanently overturning gay marriage. Yeah, for making gay marriage illegal again. Forever, yeah. Which, like, yes, Joe Biden is going to do it. Yes, a hundred percent. You know, in order to, to get some, you know, milquetoast compromise uh, where he can, like, slash Social Security, too. Yes. Where, like, the Democratic 
you know, the thing that the Democrats get is slashing Social Security, and the things Republicans get is illegalizing uh, gay marriage again. Right. Um, the things they both yeah. care about most. And, like, I know people listening to this will be like, but, you know, Joe Biden loved gay marriage, and he was the first person in the Obama administration to say he supported gay marriage. I was like, he would sell them out in a second in order in to... In a heartbeat. Yeah, in, in order to screw poor people over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His real dream. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the oral history? Sure. I didn't read the whole thing. For sure. I, I I've got a couple quotes. Thought that, it was very interesting. Vanity Fair had this very long. Uh, it was actually yeah. Hollywood Reporter. Oh, I, okay. I kept saying Vanity Fair because yeah. I thought it was a Vanity Fair piece, but it's a Hollywood Reporter oral history. And I'm such a sucker for these oral histories. I just love when they talk to like everyone who made Breaking yeah. Bad or whatever, and then you get to read it over a three hour period. But it's yeah, it's Lacey Rose and Brina Lee Sandberg at the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, the title is, you know, it's been this weird crystal ball, Veep stars and creatives talk Trump, chaos, and the series finale in dishy oral history. Um, and yeah, it's just this series of interviews, excerpts from interviews, really, uh, like a written, uh, you know, documentary, basically, about the production of Veep and its history. And it is fascinating. I mean, there's a ton of great tidbits in here. It is, as they say in the Subtitled Dishy, for sure. It's like, a, it's the Hollywood Reporter. It's, all, you know, it's very gossip heavy uh, and about like the personal interactions, which are fascinating to learn about. They talk about when the new show writer came in. Um, they talk about how Ianucci, you know, some people figured he basically had a nervous breakdown uh, after yeah. the third season. And it's interesting to hear, I don't know if you uh, got to that point where they're talking about the uh like his last contribution uh when the show was ending ianucci says the final because ep- he ended basically after season three and ianucci says the final episode i did was when the electoral college ends in a tie because i wanted to stress the log jam the fact that nothing gets done that both sides are kind of canceling each other out metaphorically that was what i wanted to say as my parting shot which you know that was kind of uh summation of everything yeah. he thought was uh about this log jam um, this kind of just, like, Baroque, uh, perverse, uh, uh, yeah, like, mess that is the governing structure. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there was a ton of interesting stuff about, like, they talk about the, uh, improved, um, insults that were a hallmark of the show. They talk about, this was, I thought this was great talking to, um, uh, yeah, Reed Scott was the, a guy who played Dan Egan. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Simons. Something Simons is... Timothy Simons. Timothy Simons. Jonah Ryan. Jonah Ryan. Ugh, like... The best character. Such a standout. And really stole the show this last season. Daddy! Hi, Bethy. I'm really sorry I just showed up. Oh, no. No. No, no, no. I I really want to have a chance to talk with you, Jonah. Jonah, I know that you're angry with me. I hate you so much I could walk into a supermarket and shoot everybody. Teddy... Improv is Jonah's thing. You should have heard his wedding vows. He did a really funny Chinese voice. Yeah, I expressed how horny I was. I just found out from my stupid stepfather. Father-in-law. From my stupid stepfather-in-law. I'm Jonah Ryan, and I want to suck this message's hot clam. Me too. Um, And they say in that Hollywood Reporter history that that was his first TV role. Yeah. This is so amazing. Uh, Incredible. And you know... Our dreams can come true. <laughs> and he started, I mean, like Splat, he started as the lowest status character on the yeah. show and became such a star. He became a, a vice president who got impeached. Yes, yeah. yeah. So Reed Scott says, you're forced to gel, which was really important with this material because the insults are so scathing and personal. You're told to tell someone they look like melted Play-Doh on a flagpole. In the beginning, we'd be like, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean that. Tim bore the brunt of it. Yeah. And Timothy Simon says, the ones that hurt the most are the simplest. Like, he's just the wrong shape. <laughs> in season two, Reed came in hot with hepatitis J. 
I broke immediately. At some point, he called Tony fucking cow eyes, too. I that is so funny. Yeah, I don't think yeah. that was in the script. Reed was a little more sociopathic about his ability to come up with them. Um, which yeah. is funny, and that's the character he plays, too. Exactly. Which is like, yeah, do you, do you get the sense that like most actors aren't acting? In their best roles, I think yeah, that's true. And they're, yeah, they're just playing themselves, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they said Reed Scott was the only one who uh, was the he was the only one reading for the network when they got to doing auditions. Uh, it just basically, he was Dan Egan from the yeah. moment they saw him. Um, just kind of interesting. And there were all these. I mean, this is such great uh, quotes about like the people they interacted with uh, in like learning how to make this show. That like the real Beltway scum. But uh, then also, yes, yeah, so Timothy Simons, who was Jonah, that was his like first role. Could you imagine, like, getting your first TV role and, like, <laughs> being, yeah, so excited for it, and then, <laughs> like, being like, wow, I guess, you know, I, I put in the years, and for, for years I was like, everyone in my life was like, what are you doing? Like, this can't work out for you. Uh, but I finally got a part, and, like, it turns out it's just to be the character who is, like, uh, abused and, like, demeaned. And, and, <laughs> and rightly so. And, and, it's just... and ridiculed for being, like, an ugly <laughs> <laughs> Inside and yeah. out, just morally <laughs> reprobate. <Yeah. laughs> that line about like, uh, oh my god! So first of all, I have to credit um, friend and friend of the show, Georgia Way, who a couple weeks back said, uh, you know, I'm excited actually that uh, De Blasio is going to run for president. I'm happy actually because uh, we need a Jonah in the race. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who Seriously. will kill a groundhog and then cover it up. Yeah. I mean, someone whose head is too big oh for his body, God. and then sometimes his body is too big for his head. Did you see the, like, social media thing <laughs> that Bill de Blasio was trying to make happen? No. Hashtag condom. What? <laughs> what is that? Which is apparently, like, uh, how, how they say condom in French? Or, or some... It sounds like condom and, and in, in, in it's in condom like condon as in Donald Trump is a con condon yeah and apparently he used it like a bunch of times in his announcement speech or whatever which was a horrible like iPhone video oh like my Joe Biden's God. like announcement video it was like a shakily held iPhone camera <laughs> that was like pointed at his torso. I'm going to keep calling him Con Don because that's what he deserves to be called. He's he's a con man. Yeah, and he kept using Con Don, uh, which is sucks. It's a terrible line. Uh, and then he's like been releasing these pictures of like bewildered New Yorkers on the street, like holding a Con Don sign, like hashtag Con Don. Those have to be the dozen New Yorkers who don't see him and immediately start berating him yeah. and telling him not to run for president. Right. Yeah. So Jonah Ryan. So um, Ianucci talks about uh, like the freaks that they meet in the Beltway. He says, we were shown around the West Wing by Reggie Love, who was Obama's Gary at some point. Yeah. Oh, I remember this part. And he kept referencing the West Wing. Yeah. Saying, this would be where CJ and Josh would sit down. I'm thinking, but you're real. Yeah. Why don't you say, this is where President Obama would sit down with Angela Merkel. Yeah. Right? Like, they, they can't see outside of these television shows. And so, of course, all these people loved being talked to by the Veep people. There's that amazing story they have here. This is... Ianucci again says, we started getting requests from politicians to appear. I remember thinking, but it's not that kind of show. The governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, was trying to get on and yeah. I kept thinking of more and more ways to postpone because we were getting a big tax credit to shoot yeah. in the state. 
Um, and, you know, Timothy Simon says, we got absolutely shit-assed at the second season rap party, and O'Malley had been playing in a band down the street, and he showed up lit. I have a great picture of the governor and me that I don't remember taking. He likely doesn't either. <laughs> That's another thing. It, a, the scam of states giving huge tax credits for uh, productions to film there. Uh, and the reason it's a scam, I mean, uh, is because they will eventually get undercut by another state. So it's not like a sustainable source of revenue for a state, but it's a way to like juke the numbers for a year or two. And, yeah. Like, so Martin O'Malley can show he's like bringing, uh, you know, shows to Maryland, whereas, you know, two years from now, uh, Delaware will undercut them and then they'll be shooting in Delaware. Exactly. Instead. It's a race to the bottom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I just loved that. Like these people, they are so fame obsessed. They can't see the difference between a show where the message is you are all evil and one where it's, you know, uh, Parks and Rec, you know, yeah, where right. it's like, you're sexy. Uh, fuck me. Yeah. Joe Biden. <laughs> um, back walls, Joe Biden. <laughs> you're, you're, you're very welcome. You're, you. you're very handsome. We're all done. Well, you're very nice. But thank, well, thank you. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow. Well, oh, well. You will? And David Mandel was the guy who took over as showrunner yeah. afterward, who had come from, uh, I think he also worked on Seinfeld. Yeah, I believe so. But he really made his bones doing Curb Your Enthusiasm for HBO, which was why HBO brought him on. Um, and there's great stories about, I mean, first of all, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, richest person in the world, uh, yeah. comes off great in this article. Uh, it's like an amazing story about her, you know, getting breast cancer and like film, not filming, but like doing table reads while right. she's getting chemo and shit like that. And it also sounds like she held the show together. I mean, she was as much a showrunner in many ways as either of these people. Uh, like she was the one who came to Mandel the first time they did a table read and she was like yeah this didn't work try again you know she righted the ship and she got it it seems like like there's this line in here about how uh, you know I think it's Iannucci talking again and he says like yeah Julia was just a natural comedian and didn't care about looking ridiculous uh, that second episode where there's the stomach virus going around uh, she got the first copy of the script to go out and she calls me and goes what if I just shit myself at the end <laughs> like that was from her yeah how cool is that I mean she's amazing yeah and she's yeah one of the like greatest comedic performers of all time certainly in the history of television oh yeah uh, I mean just how many other actors can you think of who have had two iconic roles on television not a lot yeah yeah no seriously um, and, uh, yeah. Again, because they're mostly playing themselves. Right. Um, uh, yeah, and so her other iconic role, Elaine from Seinfeld, uh, are they're totally different characters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's amazing. Yeah. They were filming on election night 2016. That was pretty cool. Reed Scott says, I was still just in a stupor over, like, what the fuck happened, but now you're left with the reality that this entity that we've all been discussing as material is now going to be very much a part of all of our lives. To its credit, Veep has never been a ripped-from-the-headlines show. If anything, it's been a weird crystal ball. That's where the title comes from. Mm. Um, we do something absolutely bonkers, and then two months later, it happens. And they really did feel like they wheeled Trump into existence. It was kind of amazing. Yeah. Did you see them on Colbert? They uh, did, like, a Stephen Colbert roundtable. Like, he the does Veep this guys? now. Yeah, the, the Veep cast and, like, maybe some writers. Too. No, I didn't see it. Uh, and then they also did, like, a comedy sketch where, like, Colbert is in oh, the yeah. world. Yeah. Uh, which was bad, which could have been so much funnier. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I don't really have anything to say about it. Cool. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, the finale, I just thought, really hit it out of the park. Like, hit the high of the highs yeah. of the physical comedy between... 
Tony Hale and Julie right, Lee and I don't think we've even really talked about like the biggest component of that final episode. No. Which is that, yeah, uh, Selena Meyer, the president, totally betrays uh, her, like, long-suffering, loyal, like, the only loyal person, uh, her bad man, Gary. Right. Who's Tony Hale. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is great. And, I mean, uh, it, it was totally surprising to me when it happened, but now thinking about it, of course, that was how they had to end That was the, the perfect ending. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't do the end where it's, you know, so, so instead you have a flashback forward where it's like 30 years from now and they're sitting on a porch like sharing tea or something right like no yeah it has to end with her totally betraying the only person who's ever shown her loyalty yeah be for the reason that he's shown her loyal the reason she is able to betray him is because he was so loyal uh and and selfless yeah yeah (laughs) yeah another brilliant actor on that show yeah he's so great yeah, he is actually another one who has had two iconic. That's people, right. Though they are very similar. Yeah, uh, and also have the same power dynamic, where he is like <laughs> beholden to a much more powerful woman in his life that he has like a weird psychosexual relationship with. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Oh God. <laughs> uh, yeah, great show. Uh, excited for uh, yeah. I mean, I guess Armando Yunucci hadn't been involved with them for a few years and right. even did Death of Stalin. Yeah, which, which was you know, incredible. Which was great despite his revisionism. <laughs> yeah, if he goes up against the wall for anything, he's going to be Death of Stalin. <laughs> even though I really liked Death of Stalin. Right, right, it was right. great. Um, but, you know, a little bit too much of a crucifix to, uh, <laughs> to survive the period. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm very excited for whatever he's going to do next. Yeah. It seems like he's... Uh, He's killing it. He has always been killing it. Uh, In the Loop is also one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. which is the movie he made, which is in a lot of ways um, felt like a test pilot for V. Totally. Julia Louis-Dreyfus isn't in it, but some of the other actors are in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Tony Soprano. And Tony Soprano, James Gandolfini. Rip. Rip to a real one. Yeah. Rip. R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, ending that episode with <laughs> Rest in Bees James Gandolfini. <laughs> As we end every yeah. episode here at the News Never Ends. So, Rest yeah. in peace. I guess just in summation. Uh, yeah. I'm still thinking about you. I was three years old the first time my father put me on a horse and I fell right off. They say experience is the best teacher, and although my own daughter never learned to ride well, I have made it my mission in life to teach and pass it on to the next generation in spades. Over the years, I may have been thrown off a few times, but like my daddy taught me, you always get right back on. Life of marriage.